Good morning, everyone. Uh, at this very start, I want to thank everybody for last week. You did not call me up or text me to give me the spoilers of what was going to happen this morning. So thank you very much. And uh, actually, last week was pretty and pretty good old-fashioned type of week. Um, nowadays, when you watch a TV program, uh, you can pretty much just watch the very first episode through the entire series and binge watch it and never have to worry week to week what happened last week and what the cliffhanger is. But last week we went old-fashioned and we gave you a cliffhanger. And if you remember in the book of Judges, Gideon is our subject. He is the one who is being groomed by God to be an incredible leader for the uh, nation of Israel during this time of being invaded by the Midianites, uh, which was all happening north part of Israel, the north part of where we would consider the north side of Pueblo, the very far reaches, in fact, the areas where there's not even any houses between here and Fountain. So that entire area was being overrun by Israel's enemy, and Israel had little just nooks and crannies of population that were being tormented by the Midianites. Now, if you remember, the Midianites come into play because of Abraham, Abraham's second wife, Keturah, had uh, like six or seven kids, and all of those kids turned out to be enemies of Israel, and one of them's name was Midian. And so Midian has for a long time been an enemy of Israel, and just for, at this point now, probably close to 600 years, have always been nipping at Israel's heels, trying to frustrate them. God raises up Gideon. Gideon has a couple testing moments where he gets encouraged by God, sometimes corrected, but always in a very loving way. God is incredibly patient with Gideon, just like he is with each of us. And last week we saw probably the beginning of that great story of Gideon. How does God whittle down 33,000 warriors to 300? And how in the world has God been to rescue Israel with just 300 people? If you count Gideon, 301 people. Well, that's where we left it, and so we're picking up in Judges chapter 7, verse 19 and through 22, and we're going to see the Lord's hand in this victory over the Midianites. Uh, so let's read those verses, verse 19 through 22 of Judges 7. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, because they split into three groups, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Now, there were typically three watches or guard times that um, are, are pretty, pretty consistent throughout ancient histories. From 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., there was a watch. The second watch was from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and then the third watch was from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Um, pretty much that second and third watch would be killers for me, but this was during the second watch. So right at that, between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning, they decide to attack. When they had just set the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Remember, their only military weapons they had, each of the men had a trumpet, had a huge uh, clay vessel jar with what inside of it? A torch, a torch inside of it. And why was the torch inside of the jar? to hide the lights. And so once the lights were exposed with the breaking of the jars and the blasting of the trumpets, everyone in that Midianite camp, which could have been over 120,000 warriors, um, would have been woken up out of sleep. And that's what we get in verse 20. 
Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, held in their left hand the torches, and in their right hand the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So every man stood in his place around the camp, and all of the army ran. They were woken up in the middle of the night with just this display of lights surrounding them, the sound of trumpets surrounding them, the sound of shouts around them, and they were afraid. They cried out and fled. Then they blew the 300 trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Bethshith and towards Zesera, as far as the border of Abel Manala and Tabath. So the picture is the camp is quiet. The second watch has just started. Everyone is fast asleep. They know any day they're going to have a battle with the Israelites. And they are just getting to those dream moments of deep sleep. And immediately clashes and clashes and clashes of broken jars everywhere. Lights surrounding the camp in every direction that they see. And then trumpet sound. And so their reaction is, let's stab one another. Basically, that's what happened. They get so confused, and it's God bringing this confusion to that army, that they wonder, who's my enemy and who's my friend? And it's not like they had name tags on all their uniforms. It's not even like they even dressed alike in uniforms. They just started hacking at each other, swinging their swords and killing one another, and I imagine the Israelites at that moment had to be looking down at this disorderly, ransacking type of massive tent city, 120,000 army men just doing their job for them, just killing each other with the sword. And all they're doing is blowing trumpets and waving around a light. Amazing. And so when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and they fled. Which means basically from every direction, if it was on the far north side of Israel, in every direction from there, they just spoked out and spidered out and ran away. The majority of them running towards the east, back to the land of the Midianites, where there was safety, where there were no Israelites. So they would have crossed the Jordan River, which in our perspective would be I-25 heading far east as they possibly could, and the entire time they are wondering, who's running with me, friend or foe? I don't know who it is, so I stab them. It is amazingly funny how God intervenes in human life to get his will done. So far at this point, this initial attack, the Israelites didn't have to raise a sword. They didn't have to throw one stone, one spear, send in one chariot, one horseman, one arrow, nothing. They just did what God commanded. Blow the trumpets, wave the uh, torches around, and yell. And God would do the rest. God is the one who brought that victory. Because no army general is going to think, I'm going to defeat 120,000 warriors with 300 people with jars, torches, and trumpets. And God tells us in that verse, he is the one who set the hearts against one another. He's the one who brought about the destruction of this army. A heart from the very heart. 
Well, he continues in the next few verses in uh, the rest of chapter 7 to give us some more details about what's happening here. So the initial attack takes place right around 10 p.m. So it's nighttime, and there were no streetlights. There were no flashlights. There were no headlights. There were no vehicles with lights. There were no floodlights. There were no spotlights. There were no nothing. What they had was basically campfires and torches. And so imagine being woken up in the dead of night, hearing all this commotion, seeing all this commotion, hearing people stabbed in the dark, not knowing what to do. They just run. And as they run, the following happens. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali, from Asher, and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. So in this process, at that 10 p.m. time frame, all this chaos is breaking forth. They're killing themselves, and Gideon somehow sends a message out to the countryside, now's the time. Now is the time to stand up and serve God. Previously... A lot of them had come together. 33,000 of the Israelites came together to attack this army of 120,000. And God whittled that down. The ones who were scared, go home. It's okay. And the ones who drank with their hands like civilized people, you go back too. I just want the ones who are lapping up water like a dog. I only want 300 of them. So he grabs those people, and now the call goes out. Now's the time to reinforce God's plan. And they do. The word goes out. 24, Gideon sent out messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim. This would have been in the middle of the night, saying, Come down against the Midians and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barath and also the Jordan. You see, if they can get them all confused in the middle of the night, uncertain about what's going on, filtering towards the Jordan River, there's no bridges there. There's no bridges across the Jordan River. In order to traverse it, you either have to go around from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, which is a good almost 200-mile stretch, making a big U-turn, or they'd have to go through it, which meant if you're going through a river as an army, it's incredibly difficult because you are sitting targets. Um, has anyone watched the show Life Below Zero? All right, I, I, I find it fascinating as well as um, at times very gross. And um, I, I've been hunting a couple times in my life, and every one of those times that I've gone, we've always had to kind of hide up in a tree uh, for the deer to come by. And I have never been successful. I have tried, but I've never been successful. They do hunting on that show a little bit differently. Um, smart, but there's a part of me that goes, it feels a little unfair. Uh, this one family that they follow uh, that does hunting, they wait for the, not elk, um, caribou, caribou, right? Caribou to all migrate through a river. And then they take their boat right next to the caribou and they harvest the caribou one foot away from the boat in the river. And there's a part of me that feels that's really kind of unfair, you know. I mean, the, it can't run, it can't hide, it can't duck. 
it is weighed down by the resistance of the river. This is exactly what the Israelites were hoping would happen to the Midianites. Drive them to the river, because once they're in the river, they can't move. And maybe there'll be easier targets. Maybe they'll run around the bank of the river, and we got them. So drive them to the river, because that is a natural barrier of resistance, where it's really hard to run in, really hard to fight in, really hard to gain an upper hand. So they're driving them to the river, to this focal point where they know we can take them out easier. So, good game plan that they have. Drive them against the Jordan. And so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barath and also the Jordan. And they captured two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Oreb and Zeb. They were the sons of the kings of the Midianites. The Midianites would have had many different kind of kings and leaders. A couple people would be in charge, but all their family would be the generals of the army. And so these two generals of the army, these two younger sons, were captured and dealt with as enemy combatants. Their lives were ended. And just so all of Israel would remember, it happened in two very distinct places. It happened at the rock of Oreb and the winepress of Zeb. Now, where are those today? Someplace north and east of Israel, someplace kind of out in the desert somewhere. And they weren't named these rocks and winepress before this happened. This was a moment in time where on that rock, Oreb lost his head. And on that wine press, Zeb lost his head. And so they were named the Rock of Oreb and the Rock of Zeb. Now, why would they name these places of execution? Why would they name them? Like so many times in Israel, when a monument of stone was built, or a tree was named, or a well was named, or a hill was named, or a river was named, or a valley was named, it was so that the people who passed by would forever be able to be reminded of the events of this story. Remember when God gave Oreb and Zeb into our hands? That's the rock he was killed on. That very rock. Go touch it. Go see it. And it was a way of encouraging and strengthening Israel's faith in God's faithfulness. Every one of those signs was not to point to Israel's hand in the victory. No. Every time they passed that rock and that wine press, they were to be reminded of what God did that day, that night, with an insurmountable army with just a few people. With God, it is not impossible. It is easy when God acts in history to bring his will to pass. It is hard for us to accept it. And it is hard at times for us to take our place in that will and be comfortable with it and trusting with it. Gideon and those 300 men had to be trusting in God's plan and not their eyes because their eyes are telling them we need more men. But God was here to demonstrate the victory is mine, not yours, Gideon, not yours, Israel. It's mine. You are my people and I am your king. I am your protector. I am the one who gives you victory and strength and ability. 
It's not in and of yourself. It's not your numbers. It's not because you're stronger, you're wiser, you have more brilliant tacticians. No, no, no. It's because I'm your God and you're my people. And that is exactly how God relates to us in this very day. I am your God and you are my people. Your strength, your power, your resolve, your wisdom, your talents, your ability, it's all mine, God says. I do ask you to act and to step out in faith and to do and to obey and to listen and to follow and to trust. But the victory is not ours to produce or win. It's God's victory every single time. It is God's victory. And we have seen numerous times, even in the story of Gideon, where God does not want to share his glory with us. He is all glorious. We reflect his glory. We have no glory in and of ourselves. We reflect the glory of the Son and his work in our life. And God asks us to trust. But God did take the call and say, hey, I need people to come help. I need people to come help now. And the people answered. And there is a time when the call for help is absolutely necessary. And answering that call is exactly what the church needs to do. How do I know, Tim, uh, when to answer the call when I hear a need? I think it's very simple. Here's the answer. And this is going to work for you for your entire life. If you step away from that need and it comes back to your mind, oh, I remember they need this or they need that or someone needs this, if you are at all, right then and there, act on that call, that need, that cry for help. Act on it. Act on it. Oh, well, I don't have the power. I don't have the time. I don't have the resources. You don't know how uncomfortable that makes me. Yes, I do. And none of that matters. When God places on your heart and opens your eyes to a need and an opportunity to serve, you grab it by the horns and say, yes, God, I will give, I will serve, I will honor, I will step out in faith. I will do it. Knowing full well you don't have the strength, knowing full well you don't have the time, you don't have the resources, you don't have the endurance, that's not the question. The question is your willingness to listen to God when he says, your people need you. When he says, I need you to act. These people were all sent home. They must have, some of them felt relief because they were scared, so they went home. But some of them probably were a little bit disappointed. What do you mean? I can't go to war. I want some of that victory, and it's all because I drink water differently than other people? They probably were a little offended, and we're going to see in the next chapter, they are offended. But yet they still answered the call because God said, call and come. Now there's two verses that come to mind when we talk about fulfilling a need that God brings to your attention. One of those is in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, and which Paul says in verse 10 of chapter 6, So then, as we have opportunity... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. 
So Paul says, whenever we have an opportunity, whenever there is something in front of us, we are to approach that something of need with that absolute precision and that beautiful understanding that we are to do good to everyone, especially those of the household of faith, especially to those who God considers our brothers and sisters who are part of the same adopted family of God. When there is a need and an opportunity, Paul says, at any time you see that, do good. Do good. And then a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 58, and the entire chapter is really encouraging, but uh, there's one of the verses in there, there's several verses in there, but this is the one I picked out that um, I think really helps motivate our service to others. And I have said this numerous times, and it is an absolute truism that when someone comes to me feeling unappreciated, when someone comes to me feeling isolated, when someone comes to me and says, Tim, I I don't feel connected, when someone comes to me and says, I don't have any friends, when someone comes to me and says, I'm lonely, my go-to answer is always going to be, maybe it's not so much a go-to answer, but it's a go-to question. My go-to question is, where are you serving? And, and I, I get this look of, no, 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 you didn't hear my question. I'm talking about, I don't feel fulfilled, I'm lonely, I don't feel connected, I don't think I have any friends. What do you mean, where am I serving? My go-to question is always going to be, where are you giving of yourself to others? Where are you serving? Where are you taking hold of the opportunities and volunteering and saying, I'll go, I'll do it, I'll sign up, I'll be part of that, I'll help. Because when that happens, something spiritually magical happens. When you start giving to others, serving others, helping others, giving of yourself to others and other needs, all of a sudden, your attention gets off of yourself and onto someone else. And God does a wonderful thing when he does that in your heart and life. He gives you joy. And it doesn't have to be, okay, I'll volunteer and teach a Sunday school class. It doesn't have to be those big things. It can be, let me hold the door open for people Sunday. Let me say hi to them as they come in out of their cars on a Sunday morning. Let me greet them. Let me ask them if I can get them a cup of coffee. Let me ask them if I could take their trash and throw it away as I see them walking out. It could be simple things, but the focus is off of yourself and poor me and on to the needs of others. And Isaiah God tells us a wonderful little nugget of truth there in Isaiah 58, verse 10. He says, if you pour yourself out to the hungry, if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted, that is a beautiful poetic way of saying, if you're out there giving of yourself to those in need who are unworthy of the world's attention, if you're helping the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom will be as noonday. See what he's saying there? 
He's saying if you pour yourself out for those in need, if you give yourself over to those who are afflicted, if the attention is off of poor you and on to others, something wonderful happens in your own heart. All of a sudden, all that doom and gloom and self-pity is gone. It's just as if the noonday opened up. It is just as if the sky became beautifully removed of all the clouds. I don't know if anyone noticed yesterday afternoon around 4 o'clock, but at least out in Pueblo West, do you know what we saw for the first time in a day? And I know that's weird. A day went by. We saw blue sky and the sun. And all of a sudden, the ickiness of that earlier that day was kind of like, eh, whatever. It's gone. Something wonderful happens when we see blue sky and the sun. It just, I don't know, it makes you smile. Your day just is a little less doomy, gloomy, and overcast. And it's a beautiful thing. So God says, when you give of yourself to those in need, when you volunteer and answer the call for help, and your attention is on others and not yourself, the needy and the afflicted, something wonderfully spiritually comes alive and enlightened in your life. That is a key to getting over self-pity, depression, and loneliness. Giving yourself over to those opportunities to do good. And the Israelites answered that call in spades. They all came out at the end of Judges 7, so much so that they pursued the army to the edges of the Jordan River, captured Oreb and Zeb, and killed them, and then, of course, brought it to Gideon as triumph. Uh, we, had a, we had a dog, Casey, who, uh, wonderful, absolutely wonderful dog. Um, actually, no, it wasn't Casey, it was Honey. Uh, another dog we had, different than Casey, challenging dog. But I remember uh, the look of horror on everybody's face when she found a little nest of animals and brought one of the animal babies, kind of, almost kind of that proud moment of, Dad, look what I brought you. Oh, why would you play with that? But... I think we've all seen cats bring mouse or mice to the doorstep, kind of this, you're looking for that acknowledgement, the cat's looking for that acknowledgement, good job, you brought in a baby rabbit, yay, good job. This is sort of what the army's doing for Gideon, bringing in the spoils of war, as was tradition. So you would think that at that moment, there would be great excitement in Israel's camp, yes! Victory, and we have two of their leaders' heads to show for it. Well, Gideon unfortunately had to deal with three groups of people that wanted to have a pity party and wanted to rain on Gideon's parade. That first group of people are the Ephraimites. Now, the Ephraimites were not allowed to go into battle with Gideon, was not part of that 300. They were afraid, and they were sent home. But they answered the call, but they were ticked at Gideon for what had happened. Let's pick that up in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely 
Okay, so you see the scenario is, who was the one who decided the 300 should go to war? Who was the actual person that made that decision? Uh, God. God did. Gideon was just the spokesman. He was just kind of the go-between between God and the 33,000 Israelites that were there. Um, but Ephraim attacked Gideon saying, how come you did this to us? You did not let us go to war. They were ticked that they were not part of the victory party of that 300. Now they came when volunteers were requested again, reinforcements were needed, but they were upset from the very beginning of this. How dare Gideon not invite us to go to war when they went up against Gideon, uh, the Midianites? And they accused him fiercely. Verse two says, and he said to them, this is his reply, may not have been my reply, may not have been your reply, but this is their reply, Gideon's reply. He said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abazur? That's Gideon's family line. God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. What did he really say? In a way, he told the Ephraimites, what you did in capturing those two princes is far greater than what I've ever done. Thank you so much for answering that call to be a reinforcement and taking the fight to our enemies and winning. You've done so much better than anything my family's ever done. Wow. Gideon, you could have pulled out the big card and said, you got a problem, you talk to God, not me. You're, you're angry at God, not me. You don't like his plans on how to go to war, you should take it up with him, not me. You're just accused, you're just blaming the messenger. No, no, no. He acknowledged the great sacrifice they made in answering the call for reinforcements and volunteering. That's all he did. He said, in light of all that's been done, you have done something amazingly good. Now, maybe he was appealing to their sense of pride, perhaps patting them on the back when he really should have just scolded them. But I think what he did is he took a lesson that God had been teaching him for two chapters, and he applied it. And he was patient and gracious and slow to anger and quick to listen and quick to acknowledge what the others have done. What a great example he learned from God that he applied. He didn't bark at them, snap at them, correct them. He just simply said, let's look at perspectives here. My family is nothing compared to yours. You've done something great. You've captured two princes, two generals of the army, and you've gained victory. That's excellent. And all their fierce words and anger disappeared. Two more groups of people, and we're going to read this quickly, verse uh, 6, or excuse me, verse 4 through 9. And Gideon came across the Jordan and crossed over, and he had 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. Remember, the army is fleeing. The Midianites are fleeing as far as they can east. Gideon and the 300 are now following that main army group. The others who answered the call for reinforcement are just taking on people who are not yet crossed the Jordan River. 
So Gideon has crossed the Jordan River, he's going east, and he's still taking on some of that army. But they're tired because they have been running through the night, probably at this point, 15 to 20 miles, running in the dead of night, taking out anyone that they had a chance to on the way. So they're exhausted. And so they said to the men of Succoth, which is a village outside of uh, the Jordan River in the north, who were Israelites, he said, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am in pursuit of Zeba and Zelmunna, uh, and the kings of Midian. So these are the two heads of the entire Midian clan. And the officials of Sekoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zebmunna uh, already in your hand that we would give you bread to your army? So Gideon said, uh, well then, uh, the Lord has given Zeba and Zelmuna into my hand. I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penol. And he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penol answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he said to the men of Penol, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. What is happening here? is two groups of Israelites in pretty fortified cities refused to give aid and help to Gideon and his army simply because we don't know who's going to win yet. Are the kings in your hand yet? No. Well, you know what? I'm going to hedge my bet and just kind of keep out of this conflict. And then if you win, okay, come, on, come back and get some bread. But if you don't win... You know, the Midianites, if we're not, if we help you and they win, that's going to look bad on us and we'll be attacked by the Midianites. So it's probably best if, um, since you're not victorious yet, that we just kind of keep out of this. You know, we're going to stay neutral. There's no neutrality with God. You're either with him or against him. You're either for him or you're not for him. You're either following him or not following him. You're either trusting in him or you're not trusting in him. You either have faith in him or you don't have faith in him. You either love him or you don't love him. There is no neutral middle ground and you can't wait to figure out who's going to win. I'll tell you who wins. It's God. Each and every time, God wins. His word always remains true and always remains absolute. And when you take the stance, well, not sure about this whole marriage things God's got worked out here. Let me just see what the current cultural climate is on what is real marriage or gender. Let me just wait to see kind of how it falls, falls into order. That's what the men of Succoth and the men of Penal did. They took a hands-off approach to God and his kingdom and his work and his calling and said... We don't really know who's going to win yet, so until we know, we're not going to take sides. If you call yourself a Christian, you've taken sides against the entire world. You've taken sides against the prince of darkness and all of his legions. You have taken side. When you claimed the name of Christ, when you looked at his cross and the sacrifice of his son to forgive your sins, you took a side, and that side is God 100% without any deviation in that path. That is your new family. And when God calls, you answer. You love and you give good to all that you can. And you stand on his word as absolute 
unchangeable, undeniable truth, regardless if the world laughs at you or cancels you or ignores you or worse, martyrs you. It does not matter because God has already told us in the end the victory that he brings, absolute domination over sin, death, and the devil. Absolute victory. So the last few verses here, real quickly. Now, Zeba and Zulmana were in uh, Kakor with their army, about 15,000 men. Remember, Gideon has how many people with him at this time? 300 men. 301, I guess, if you're counting Gideon. I don't know if Gideon's counted in that. He might be. Regardless, I don't think there's a big difference between 300 and 301. So they got 300 who were left, and all the army of the people of the east, for they had fallen, or for there had fallen 120,000 men already. Already 120,000 Midianites were dead. The men who drew the sword, that is, killed each other. And Gideon went up to the way of the tent dwellers of the east of Noab and uh, Jaghabana, and they attacked the army, for the army felt secure. So they were kind of in this valley area surrounded by some mountains. And Zeba and Zolmana fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zolmana, and threw all the army into a panic. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man from Sekoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sekoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sekoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana already in your hands that we should give you bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns from the wilderness and briars with them and taught the men of Sekoth a lesson. Which basically means, we know what it means that he was taught a lesson, right? Spank, spank, spank. Well, probably not that gentle. It was probably whip, whip, whip. But. And he broke down the tower of Penol and killed the men of the city. Three groups of people that Gideon dealt with in different ways. One is a beautiful take-home lesson from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Gideon gently answered the people of Ephraim and acknowledged their goodness and greatness and didn't exert his own authority and didn't say, how dare you say this against me? God is God. And lots of verses on how to deal with people who act arrogant, who act angry towards you, that gentleness is a good example of how to win people out of that angry, angry moment into a moment of communication and comfort. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is where we're going to stop, stop today, Paul says that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. God puts on us a 24-7 responsibility to do good to everyone that we possibly can, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works 
for the Lord. Where are you right now at this stage in life, at this moment, abounding in good works? Where are you outstanding in your help to those in times of need? Where are you standing with great conviction to do good to others that Christ has done to us? That's a huge calling. That's a huge question to ask us because we will immediately come up with the number one excuse in this day and age. I can't do anything because of COVID. I can't. I, I have to be, you know, I, I can't do anything. I can't help people. I can't give a handshake. I can't, oh my goodness, hand someone something? Oh, I can't do that. It doesn't have to be handing someone something. It can be a gentle, kind word to someone who is really having a tough time. Loving on them with words and deed. God's called all of us to that. And it may be scary, and it may go against what you might think is right and wrong, but always siding with God, doing good is right. Always doing good to those in need is right. Let's pray as the band comes up to close us. Father, you've taken us on a whirlwind of activity today. Maybe lots of questions unanswered, but certainly a call that you've given us that is clear. Help us, Father, as your people who have claimed the name of Christ and his forgiveness. Help us, Father, to demonstrate to the world around us the goodness of your name, the goodness of your gospel, and the goodness of your truth. Help us, Father, to stand firmly upon your word that we might show the world around us your love through Christ through us. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. Let's close and sing this song. Let's stand.